Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we admit that we are powerless over our cancelers, that our lives have become unmanageable. So welcome back to fucking cancelled. Welcome back to fucking cancelled. How you doing, Jay? Fucked. I'm <laughs> fucking tired. Everything's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, Clementine was saying earlier, like. It's really hard to make a podcast about being fucking canceled when you're constantly being fucking canceled. Um, people keep canceling us. Yeah, totally. And for like new and inventive reasons. <laughs> yeah, all the time, all the time. It doesn't really end, you know. Um, and like, there's a global pandemic going on, and like, I don't know. I keep saying to my therapist that I have like combination like pandemic fatigue and cancellation fatigue. Yeah. Um, it's pretty exhausting, and so it's hard to stay on top of, like, everything right now, um, let alone, you know, a podcast that is, like, definitely on the topic of cancel culture, but, um... It's also April 22nd, and it's been snowing for two days. Yeah, which is not great. No. And I mean, also, literally, there's been an 8 p.m. curfew here for, like, four months. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, since Christmas? Yeah. I guess there's been, we've been locked inside our houses. And like literally like, um, you know, I'm, we're at Jay's right now recording this and like, we're literally like looking at the clock because like I have to get home. I have to like leave before the, uh, the curfew hits. So yeah. it's pretty dystopian. It's a little dystopian. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, lately, like we've been going through another wave of cancellation bullshit and it's like pretty exhausting. And I think both of us are like pretty fucking burnt out, but we obviously want to make a podcast episode for you guys. We have um, a cool interview lined up. We're not going to give it away, but we have a cool interview lined up. Yeah, I'm excited um, about this interview. Yeah, so we'll do that soon. Yeah. Um, but in the meantime, we were like, yeah, let's do a Jay and Clementine episode. Um, and so basically, like, from the beginning that of this podcast, like, we've talked about how we're, like, highly um, influenced by the 12 Steps and, like, the 12 steps and the principles of the 12 steps like really like frame our worldview um and it's funny because it's like they're actually like some of the ideas in the 12 steps are like actually quite like counterintuitive to like sort of the ways that a lot of people think or the ways that we are taught to think um and so yeah it's like important for me a like I just uh Shout out to me, I just passed nine years of sobriety on, uh... Fuck yeah. On, uh, April 20th. Uh, <laughs> on April 20th, yeah. <laughs> 420 never plays it again. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, at this, you know, I've been sober for a long time, but, like, returning to the steps and, like, returning to the principles and, like, reminding myself that I have this other way of thinking about things is, like, really, really important. And so... You know, we find it important, obviously, in our personal lives, in our recovery, but also it's something that really guides our politics um, as well. And so from the beginning, we really wanted to do a series of episodes in which we, like, unpack the steps. Um, And so this is going to be the first um, of 12 of those episodes. Yep. Um, And so this is step one. Yeah, this is our step one episode. Um, 
Yeah, I was also just saying to Clementine earlier before we started recording that I kind of, uh, I'm like, I love the 12 steps a lot. I'm also like a, like a bad 12 stepper. I, I like, I never do my 12 step homework. I like skip meetings constantly, like for the past year, for example, um, more or less, cause I hate zoom. Um, and all the meetings aren't fucking zoom these days. Um, and yeah, you know, like I never call my sponsor and all that kind of thing. Um, and one thing I do is I forget the steps because like, I, I was just thinking about this. I literally like dissociate when I think about them and I still do this like eight years into my sobriety or whatever. Um, and so I have to have them in front of me. Um, and I have to remind myself of them constantly. So it's a good thing that we're doing this. Um, um, I think that a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of addicts and alcoholics, like we need to be reminded of the 12 steps and 12 step principles constantly because we, our brains are like sieves and we just forget everything that's good for us. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, yeah, but I will say that, like, Jay and I are probably pretty much opposites on this topic, whereas, like, there are, like, entire chunks of the big book that I can recite by memory in a way that is actually creepy. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, I got sober in Toronto, and, like, 12-step uh, culture there is, like, really, really big book. Um, and, yeah. What, is it, what, is that, what does that mean? Oh, yeah, I guess for the, the non-12-steppers. Okay, so, like, we're saying 12-steps, um... We're saying 12 steps instead of naming particular fellowships just because it's part of, like, respecting anonymity and, you know, not speaking on behalf of any particular fellowship, which, again, we should probably reiterate in this episode that we are not spokespersons for any 12-step fellowship. We are speaking only of our own experiences. We're not speaking for any of these fellowships. These are our own ideas. Yeah, we don't, we don't claim to speak on behalf of anything or anyone. Yeah. Other than ourselves. Exactly. Um, but... You know, we're influenced by these ideas and we think they're important and that they're useful to people who maybe are not going to 12-step programs. So that's why we want to talk about them. But basically in AA, which is a 12-step fellowship, the um, the primary text um, is affectionately called the big book. Um, that's what we call it. And I remember when I went to my first meeting, I was like, what the fuck is this big book? Like, <laughs> I was like, where's this big book? You know, and like, <laughs> I really like in my mind was like picturing people with like this very large oversized book, but now it's like totally normal to me. Everybody calls it the big book. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty regular sized book. Honestly. It's a normal sized book. Yeah. yeah. It's funny that they call it that. But anyway, so yeah, this book, um, which its actual name is just Alcoholics Anonymous, but people call it, um, the big book. Like, basically, like, kind of to use 12-step slang, I would say that I'm very book, which means that, like, I know the big book inside and out. The way that I was sponsored was heavily based on that book. Um, like, me and my sponsor would, like, sit together and, like, read the book, like, to each other page by page in coffee shops. Like, that's how people in the city that I'm from do it. Um, and I've sponsored people that way. And basically, yeah, I'm just, like, really heavily influenced by the literature. Um, and, you know, I mean, I could memorize, like, I had the, the 12 steps memorized, like, very early in my sobriety just because they read them at the beginning of every single meeting, right? So it's, like, I definitely don't dissociate. I dissociate most of the time, but not when I'm listening to the steps. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, it's funny too, because different cities have different, like, 12-step culture. Definitely, um, yeah. There's, like, strong regional variations and, like, variations from city to city and, like, weird traditions that pop up in some cities that, you know, you, you go to the next city and you're like, wait, you don't do this thing yeah. that we do in our city or whatever? Um, and, yeah, I don't know. Montreal, Anglo, AA, or also NA and also some other fellowships that I've actually been at um, are 
significantly more like loosey-goosey, and Toronto meetings that I went to were a lot more, yeah, book. But anyways, I'm also just an outlier. I just, I'm... Yeah. I'm like weird about the toe steps. And it's true. When I came to Montreal, I was like very, very uncomfortable and I had to keep an open mind. Yeah. <laughs> live and let live. Anyway, so I don't embarrass myself. What is the uh, the first step? Clinton? Um. So it is, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And that is the first step as it is written in Alcoholics Anonymous. And basically Alcoholics Anonymous is the first 12 step program. But then many other 12 step programs have sprung up since then and they will just change the wording. So instead of um, alcohol, they'll put in whatever it is that like the focus of that fellowship is. Right. Um, and so I'm pretty sure in NA, it's like we are powerless over our addiction. Um, yeah, I think so. And like, yeah, in Al-Anon, it's also we are powerless over alcohol, but they mean like they're powerless over the alcoholic. Yeah. Um, and so on and so forth. So there's many, many different 12-step fellowships. Um, so yeah. Yeah, we just wanted to start talking about, like, what does this even mean and, like, why... Well, first, we're just going to unpack what it means, and then we want to talk a bit about, like, why we feel like it's relevant to this podcast. Right. So, yeah, to say it again, we admit that we're powerless over X, um, that our lives have become unmanageable. Yeah. So there's, like, a bunch of components to it, right? There's the admission, which is important. That's the first little bit. Um, There's the powerlessness, right? Um, and there's the unmanageability. And you forgot one thing. The acceptance. No. <laughs> I guess that's the admission. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. You forgot one thing. What is it? I'm sorry. I'm going to be so buck at you right now. Is it that we say we? Yes. It's that we okay, say yeah. we. We, we admit. Yeah. And so, you know, that's important because, I mean, the steps start with we and not I. Um, yes. And so we do this collectively. Because it's a cult. <laughs> No, <laughs> no, it's because we don't do it alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was you just know. Um, and so, anyway, um, yeah. So we want to talk a bit about these concepts. Um, I think the like for me, I think the most important concepts in the steps are the powerlessness and the unmanageability. And usually, when you work with a sponsor, like they'll get you to think about the ways in which you're powerless and also the ways in which your life has become unmanageable. Right. So I don't know. Like, what was your experience with? Step one. Um, let's see. It was interesting for me because before I stopped using drugs and alcohol, I had already accepted fully that I was an alcoholic and a drug addict. Um, I knew it. I wasn't in denial about it. I think the main thing for me was that I kept trying to um, chase after manageability, basically. Mm. I kept thinking that even though I knew that I was very much um, addicted... I was like, maybe there is some way that I can make this work for me. And the fact that I can't make it work for me over and over and over and over again is probably evidence that I am like a uniquely bad and shitty person or that I just haven't tried all the right things enough. Um, I don't really know, but whatever it is, it sucks. Um, And so for me, I think, yeah, like, and I, I think that other people have the opposite experience, right? Like... Some people um, know that their lives are fucking unmanageable, but they, they're not able to accept that they're powerless. Mm. And they, they really keep trying to chase after the, the, the power. Like, they think that they have power. Yeah. Um, and that their lives are unmanageable for a bunch of other reasons or whatever. But I was like, no, 
Like that's interesting. Like I know that I'm powerless over drugs and alcohol. Like I fucking cannot fucking control it. But you know, like maybe there's one, there's some way that I can make it manageable. Um, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, and it's interesting. Like in the big book, they talk about sort of like I mean, the big book was written in the 1930s, right? So that's like a whole thing. But they talk. They have this list of like you know the different things that that people try to do to make it so that they they do have power over their drinking, right? So there's like you know, um, only drinking on weekends and they're switching from one type of alcohol to another type of alcohol and like taking a trip, not taking a trip, like whatever. There's right. like all of these different things. And like, usually when this part of the book comes up in meetings, like people will share about like all of the different things that they tried, like only drinking with, with food or like, you know, never drinking alone, never drinking like, alone. Yeah. Um, and then often they will like laugh about how none of that how, worked. How none of that worked. And I mean, the ridiculous things that people would do to like, keep in line with whatever rule they were like yeah. setting for themselves. You know, like I knew, I know, I know people who never drank alone. Yeah. Um, but that just meant that like every day and every night they would go out and try to find people to get super fucking I mean, yeah. Like I, it's funny. Cause I was like, well, I don't drink alone. <laughs> I drink in public. You're not, <laughs> you're not alone if you're in public. Um, but yeah, like, I don't know. I think for me, like, it was very obvious that I am an alcoholic, like, from the beginning, I drank alcoholically, um, you know, but, like, maybe, like, the third or fourth time I drank, I ended up in a psych ward, like, completely, like, like, I had, I had so much alcohol in my system that I was drunk for, like, several days, and, like, when they, um, you know, after I had sobered up, kind of talked to me about that, you know, and they suggested that maybe I had a, a problem with drinking, like, I was definitely like, no, 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 no. I'm mentally ill, like, absolutely, but, like, it's not alcohol, man. It can't be, you know? Mm. Um, and then, of course, like, my drinking continued to be crazy. And, like, it was very obvious in the same way that I, like, as you're saying, that, like, I didn't have any control over it because, like, there was no evidence that I had any control of it. Like, once I started, I could not stop or control the amount that I drank, but I did hang on to that hope or that illusion for a long time and, like, I don't know, one story I often tell is that, like, I, even though I was, like, literally such a sketchy drunk, I was, like, you know what would be kind of nice, kind of, like, a bit, I don't know, classy, kind of normal, is, like, if I just, like, had a glass of wine with dinner, you know? Because that's a thing that people do, and I know that they do it, uh, you know? Apparently they do, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I, and I, I was, like, you know, I do like the taste of wine. I do like it. I like the taste of wine, you know? And so... I was like, I just like, I'm just, yeah, like I'm, I'm just going to have a glass of wine with dinner. Like that's totally normal, you know? And so like, I, I had a glass of wine with dinner. I had another glass. I finished the bottle. I went and got another bottle, um, you know, and like I left the house, like I, I left the house. I went and got another bottle. And then I literally, like I woke up, like when I did eventually wake up, like I was sleeping in a park. You know? Yeah. And that's where, like, a glass of wine um, with dinner, like, would take me. So, like, definitely that. And, like, I think for me, like, yeah, my life was definitely unmanageable um, in the sense of, like, pure chaos all the time. So, I think, like, once, by the time I landed in a 12-step fellowship, um, at least with alcohol, I was, like, really ready to take the first step. It was harder for me to take the first step with other drugs, which is why my sobriety date is 420. <laughs> because I, for the first few weeks that I was, um, you know, uh, going to meetings, I was like totally not willing to stop smoking weed 
and I was just high constantly. Um, and it was like before, it just so happened to be that somebody had said to me, like, why don't you just surrender? Because I was like totally unwilling. I was just like, it's not possible for me to stop doing that, you know? Um, and somebody said, why don't you just surrender? And it happened to be just like the day before 420 and like I smoked all my weed and then on 420, I didn't have any and that person's words came into my head and I went and I picked up a chip and I have been sober ever since. And that was nine years ago. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so like, that's kind of like a bit of our stories, like in relationship to like drugs and alcohol. Um, but yeah, like this concept is like bigger than just that, you know, like what, what does it mean? Like, cause I just use the word surrender and I think like surrender, um, comes up a lot in discussions, um, of the first step. Also like, you know, the serenity prayer is a prayer that is like said at a lot of meetings and like, it's like basically like higher power, um, you know, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And so like that first part, especially about like accepting the things that you can't change is also really step one. Like mm-hmm. how do we know when to stop trying to control something that we can't control, you know? Yeah, for sure. And like, I don't know, especially like, okay, for now I'll just talk about alcohol. Um, The reason I say that I'm powerless over alcohol is that when I start drinking alcohol, I'm unable to stop drinking. Mm -hmm. You know? Not everyone has exactly that pattern, but that's usually the pattern, basically, for alcoholics. Um, I'm unable. Like, I cannot do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And what that means is that every time I'm... Every time I would wake up, I would be like, I regret what I did. I don't want to do that again. Um... Like, maybe today's the day I'm going to stop drinking. Um, Next time I drink, I'm not going to drink like that, whatever. And Uh then, inevitably, every single time I would start drinking again, I would drink until I blacked out. Um, I I have never drank one beer in my life. There's no time at which I drank one beer and then I stopped drinking. Um, Including when I was, like, literally, like, a small teenager. Um, Yeah. And so that's what I mean when I say I'm powerless. It's like... I, no matter what I tried, it was always like that. Um, no matter what I told myself, it was always like that. No matter my circumstances, no matter where I found myself, like no matter what, it was all, it always ended up like that. And Mm -hmm. I got myself into crazy fucked up situations Mm -hmm. constantly as a result of that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, so that's the powerlessness. Like it really, like it didn't matter what I tried. And so, yeah, like Clementine was just saying, the question is like, what do you, what do you do about that? Mm -hmm. You know, like, do you keep trying forever to sort of like change this, this, this thing about yourself that like, maybe you, we don't even understand like whatever. Um, or do you accept that that is the way that the world is Mm -hmm. like, and you in it and then try to do something about that. Yeah. Right. And okay. So like, it's funny because I didn't really have a problem with this when I came in. Like, I was, like, ready, as they say. Like, I was ready to admit that. I was not, I was not, I was not offended by step one. But, like, one of the things that you often hear um, about, you know, kind of people having issues with step one is that people don't want to give up power because they're like, 
you know, a lot of people, um, for example, are really traumatized from, like, having had so much power enacted over them or, like, they don't have a lot of power in their life already, you know? Like, they might have experienced, like, a lot of violence or, like, a lot of experiences of domination and, like, they don't feel like they have a lot of power. So, like, admitting powerlessness, you know, can feel really frightening and overwhelming because it's, like, people don't want to be powerless, you know? They want, obviously, to have power. And obviously, for, like, a survivor or someone who's, like, gone through some really fucked up shit, like, the idea of admitting powerlessness... Um, could be really overwhelming. And also, I think there's similar connotations that a lot of people feel towards the word surrender because people sort of have this idea of, like, this, like, battle. And, like, to surrender is to, like, you know, I mean, it's to stop fighting, right? For sure. You want to be re-empowered. You want to, you want to win. You don't want to surrender yeah. and, and, and say that you're powerless. Yeah. But, like, what I understand for myself with this is that it's actually, it's a paradox because it's, like, when I admit what I am powerless over... And I stop putting all my energy into trying to change something that I do not have the power to change. Then suddenly all of that energy is freed up. And I now I have so much more power to actually focus on the things that I can change, right? Right. And like, to me this connects to freedom. Because a big lie that I told myself when I was drinking is that drinking is what makes me free. Like, I want to be free, and when I drink, I feel free, and, like, I'm free to drink, and when I drink, I'm free, you know? And, like, I don't want to be constrained. I don't want to be controlled. I don't want to give up my freedom, you know? Yeah. Um, And so, like, the idea of being sober sounded fucking awful to me, because I was like, that sounds boring, and it sounds like I'm not allowed to do something. Like, there's a rule imposed upon me, you know? Yeah. Um, But, you know, once I did, you know, start to get sober... What I realized is that when I was caught up in addiction, I was not free. I was actually totally at the mercy of my addiction and I had no fucking control over myself. Like I, your choices were totally constrained. My choices were constrained. Like I literally couldn't do anything if it, if like, like I needed to get drunk and I needed to get high. Like that's what I needed to do. And if anything was going to like prevent me from doing that, well, then I didn't want that thing. And so, like, many doors were just closed in my face. Not to mention that if I did get anything else in my life, I would probably get drunk and then, like, totally fuck that up, you know? And so it's, like, a crazy world of freedom opened up for me when I got sober. Like, a crazy world of freedom that I never could have imagined for myself. I suddenly had all of this power, you know? I suddenly had all of this power to make all of these changes in my life and to, like, direct the course of my life um, in a way that like felt good to me and allowed me to move towards the things that are important to me. Right. You know? And ultimately like that power and that freedom that, that we gain came from admitting powerlessness over, over something over which we're powerless. Right. And, um, yeah, you know, again, just to point out that a lot of people are, are very threatened by the idea of admitting that they're powerless. Right. And I think that this comes from sort of this fundamental misunderstanding um, because we are all of us powerless over all kinds of shit and, and we don't have any problem admitting it. Um, it's just that we rarely are made to admit it, you know? So, I mean, a really obvious example is like gravity, like you're powerless over gravity. There's no- nothing you can change about yourself will change the way that gravity affects you. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you could like build an airplane. Um, actually you couldn't, you would need a giant factory and a bunch of other people and whatever, but you could build an airplane and you could fly. Right. But as soon as you got out of the airplane, you would still be not flying. 
And like, you know, an alcoholic could get in an airplane and fly around and not be drinking because they're in an airplane, <laughs> you know. I mean, but people this always is... relapse on airplanes. It's a <laughs> well, classic okay, okay. But story. I mean, like, if they're like locked in an airplane with no alcohol, <laughs> okay, yeah. they're not drinking, right? But as soon as they get back to the ground, they will find alcohol and they'll get drunk. Um, so it's the same thing. That's what I'm saying. But yeah, so if you spent all your time sort of like standing in a field, staring at the sky and being like, ah, yeah, <laughs> one day <laughs> yeah. I will meditate enough to be able to like fly or whatever. Yeah. You are wasting your life. Yeah, you could have been doing a lot of other things instead of focusing on this one thing that you can't change, you right. know? And as soon as you accept that, like, that's just not going to happen, then you can start doing literally everything else. Yeah. And right? so, like, that was my experience is that, like, you know, I mean, you know, it's crazy. Like, it seems like a crazy thing to give up because at the time it was the most important thing to me. It was, like, the thing that I loved more than anything and it was the thing that meant everything to me, you know? So, like, to give that up, to stop trying to control that and to, like, really surrender it was, like, cr a crazy thing to do. But now I see it as the thing that, like, actually opened the door for me to, like, all of the amazing things that have been able to be possible for me in my life since then. So, yeah, um, I feel like that kind of basically explains step one and like I guess okay so there's the, also this story in the big book um that is like kind of illustrative of step one in terms of like it's well it's illustrative of more than one step but like basically it's like it it talks about it uses this analogy and this is sort of like where because we're going to start extrapolating from, like, step one in relationship to drugs and alcohol towards step one in relationship to other things, right? Yeah. And so, like, in the in the big book, there's this story that is affectionately called the actor who tries to run the show, right? And basically, it's, like, it's just, like, this um, analogy of, like, what if there was, like, this actor who was, like, in this play, but the actor was, like, really, really obsessed with the idea that, like, everything in this play needs to go exactly the way that I want it to go. And so I'm going to, like, try to micromanage it, and I'm going to try to control every aspect of it. And basically this actor is trying to, like, order the other actors around and, like, change the lighting and, like, tell the director what to do and, like, all of these things, right? Yeah. And so this gets a little bit into further steps, so I'm not going to unpack that part of it here because we're going to do other episodes. But, like, just in terms of the step one... um component of that story like it's like what I mean I guess it could be within that actor's power to like try to to try to control everything else you know like the actor could try how is that going to go for the actor though you know right is the actor going to be doing as good of a job trying to do what the actor is supposed supposed to be trying to do which is act and do their own role are they going to piss off everybody else in the production? <laughs> like, are they going to be, like, really annoying and probably get fired as an actor because, like, they, you know, and possibly lose all their friends because, like, they keep trying to order everybody else around? Yeah, and at know? the very least, like, won't they be, like, totally distracted? Yeah, and unable to actually, like, enjoy the experience of whatever it is that they're actually trying to do, which is, like, be an actor in a play. Um, and so, like, this analogy is sort of, like, it's, asking us to think about the ways in which we try to control everything in our lives. Mm -hmm. um, and, and like, I don't know. I think it's interesting. Like, I think, I think that it's very normal for people to want to try to control things. Um, I think that it makes sense. Like, I understand the impulse, you know, especially, like, if you're scared and especially if, like, um, certain, like, things about your security are feeling threatened, 
like from a basic sort of like evolutionary like um nervous system perspective you know if we feel threatened we're obviously going to do everything that we can to protect ourselves and to keep ourselves safe and so like a lot of what this can look like for people is like trying to micromanage their lives like trying to control people places and things like that's like sort of also a 12-step thing that people say yeah and basically like the the nugget of wisdom um in this step i mean there's a lot of different ways to think about the step but like one of the main nugs is uh is that when you try to control things that you cannot control things become unmanageable yeah and it causes you misery um and so you know if you're an alcoholic there's all kinds of examples of this right you're you're like um you're trying to let's say you're trying to make sure that people um don't realize how much alcohol you're buying Okay, that's one one way you're trying to have power over your your addiction. So you're going to different stores, uh, three times three to three or four different stores a day, so that like the clerks at the different stores <laughs> right. don't realize how much alcohol you're buying. Right. Um, and when you go to a party, you uh, pre-drink like a lot first, and you have to like leave early to make sure that you're going to get enough to drink at the end of the night as well. Um, when you go on a date, you have to get like fucking hammered first. Um, but if you get too hammered, you are sloppy. And so you have to like find that, that sweet spot and you have to hide a bunch of beer in your backpack or you have to like do activities at which you can get hammered, you know, mm-hmm. if whatever, there's like a million examples of this or another, um, way you might be trying to have power over your addiction might be, um, to make sure that you never run out. Right. Um, and people keep throwing out your booze. So you start hiding bottles like uh, throughout the house, you hide them like, uh, behind the pipes and you hide them like in the toilet, um, the the back of the toilet and you hide them like under the bed and you hide them in the nightstand and whatever, you know what I mean? And before you know it, you are forgetting where you've hidden all your stuff. And like, you know, sometimes um, people who use drugs um, might hide like pills and stuff around their house and they have like kids and that can be like very dangerous and whatever, you know what I mean? So there's lots of different ways that you are trying to control things. Or here's another example. You're trying to make sure that um, you, you're keeping track of all the lies that you tell people because... Mm-hmm alcoholics and addicts um actually i'm going to say i as an alcoholic and addict um (laughs) lied a lot right because i was trying to you know not appear to be sort of like as much of a mess as i was so i lied a lot about a lot of different things where i was how much i was drinking what i was doing with my time uh what i spent my money on that kind of thing um and then i had to keep track of all these lies but that was really really fucking hard because i was drunk all the time and i was blackout all the time i couldn't remember anything and also there was just a lot of lies to keep track of you know and all of that makes your life unmanageable at a certain point it becomes so chaotic, so impossible to keep track of. Um, there's so many, so many like weird things you find yourself doing. You need to erect these like mental barriers to feel okay about any of it. Um, you know, it, it becomes extremely unmanageable and so stressful, like yeah. incredibly, incredibly stressful, right? And so basically, the step is being like, listen, none of this is working. Yeah. You know, like at a certain point, you gotta admit none of this is working, and yeah. your life has become totally unmanageable. Yeah. And, like, I mean, I don't know, just, like, a very simple, basic sort of example of that, you know, is that, like, if I don't admit that I'm powerless, like, if I try to tell myself that I can control how much I drink, then what happens is, is that I drink. And then what happens is, is that I can't control it. And so, like, a basic example of that is, like, if I used to, like, walk past, you know, a liquor store, I would just be like, well, I might as well just go inside and buy some. Because I believe that I would have the power to buy it and not drink it right away. And then I would buy it. And then I would say, well, I might as well, now that I have it, I might as well just crack it. 
you know? Yeah. Because I believed that I wouldn't get blackout drunk right then. And the thing is, is that I was going somewhere. I was on my way somewhere. Like, right. I had whole plans. Like, there was things that I was doing, but all of that went out the window. Yeah. And, like, if you do that over and over again, you know, obviously shit is unmanageable. Like, whatever it is that you were supposed to do is not happening, right? And so, like, that's, like, obviously, like, with, um, with, like, you know, drugs and alcohol, shit can get very dramatic. So this, this can be, like, um very obvious, you know, I mean, it's not obvious, you know, for everyone, but like, for me, it was very, very obvious that shit was fucking unmanageable. But like, once you've been sober, you know, for a long time, or for people who don't have, you know, extremely chaotic drug and alcohol use, you know, who are listening to this podcast, it's like, the question is like, how is this relevant in other circumstances, you know? Yeah. And like people who do 12 steps, like, at least in theory, um, are supposed to not only do the steps kind of like again and again to keep them fresh, but also kind of to do them like on a daily basis. Yeah. Right. To like live them. And so it's like, you know, and I've repeated the steps and I'm currently, um, doing, I just started another set of steps, which I'm going to talk about. Um, but basically like, you know, sometimes it is, it's harder actually. It's harder and it's more frustrating to do the steps later because, because the unmanageability is less dramatic. And so therefore admitting the powerlessness is harder. Yeah. You know, because I'm like, look, 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 there's no ambulances. There's no ambulances. There's no cops. Everything's fine, man. I got this, man. It's under control, man. You know? Yeah. And so it's easy for me to be caught up in all sorts of dysfunctional behaviors that I am, you know, repeating, you know, and that I'm not able to stop. Or that I'm like obsessing over other people or circumstances that are beyond my control and my obsession over that and my attempts to control those things is also, you know, really fucking with my mental health, making my life unmanageable. But because it's not as dramatic, it's easier for me to sort of just ride it out, you know, to just be like, this is fine. It's like the guy, the little meme with the guy, the little dog in the kitchen and it's Mm. on fire. And You're it's right. Like, this is fine. This is fine. You know? And it's like, that's kind of like what it's like. So, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and so, I don't know. Should I get into right now? Should I get into, like, the current steps that I'm doing? Should I talk about that? Yeah. I'll just very briefly preface it by, like, repeating again this little, like, the people, places, and things thing. Yeah. Which is, like, in 12-step programs, they're like, you're powerless over people, places, and things, dude. Like, you can't control other people. You can't control places because they're places. Um, and most things you fucking can't control, yeah. you know? Like, but the thing that you can control is you. You can control you. So fucking focus on that, you know? Yeah. And, and it's like, there's some other things that might be kind of fuzzy and you might have some control and whatever. That's fine. Um, but, like, mainly you can control you and it's the thing that you least try to control because right. you're fucking chaotic. So, like, yeah. like, stop trying to control literally everything around you and just, like, focus on your fucking self for a second. Totally. And so, yeah, and, and especially it's other people, man. Like... You know, and we can talk about sort of like broad systems and stuff. And we do, like, we can um, influence them. We can change things. There's the political activism. There's, poli- you know, there's there's policies and there's, there's um, you know, demonstrations and all this kind of stuff and, and whatever. You can change large systems, um, not by yourself, though, um, yeah. but, like, as, as part of an organization or group, you can. But other individual people, it is very, very, very difficult to control them. Um, and trying to control them will hurt everyone almost always but yeah so i'll just i just i'm just gonna drop that in and Clinton yeah. is gonna start the, okay. next, the next section so wait now i want to say a couple more things okay do it. <laughs> do it so i mean 
I, I feel like it's worth mentioning Al-Anon because mm, yeah. basically, like, Al-Anon... So, like, Al-Anon was, like, kind of like the second 12-step fellowship that came up. Um, and basically, it came up because, basically, there was, like, all of these alcoholics. They were all, like, dudes, and it was, like, the 1930s. And they were all running around, you know, running into hospitals, finding drunk people, and, like, you know... <laughs> like, shaking all yeah, like, like, you gotta surrender! Yeah, it's, like, a lot of dramatic history, but... Anyway, they all had wives, right? And the wives were also, like, you know, the wives were not alcoholics, and the wives were, you know, dealing with their crazy husbands all the time, right? And so the wives started a group that was called Al-Anon, and Al-Anon is for family members and loved ones of alcoholics and addicts. And so the 12 steps in Al-Anon is actually about like the unmanageability of having an addict in your life. Right. And so the first step, when they take the first step, what they're saying is I am powerless over the alcoholic. Right. And so what that means is that like when, like, you know, and I definitely qualify for Al-Anon because everyone I know is an alcoholic. Um, but it's like, you know, when you love someone and they're fucking destroying their life, their life and they're like fucking doing crazy shit and they're like saying hurtful things to other people or to you and like whatever. They're just like doing all this shit and saying that they're going to stop and they don't stop. Like it's fucking hard, man. And like anyone who's like loves someone who's like really caught up in that chaos like knows how fucking hard that is. And so it can bring out a lot of like codependent behavior where the person who qualifies for Al-Anon like starts trying to micromanage the alcoholic by being like, you know, obsessively trying to know how much they're drinking and like whatever, making ultimatums or like very obsessing constantly, thinking about it constantly and like basically giving over the focus of their own life and their own interest to like a focus on the unmanageability of the alcoholic. But then what ends up happening is that for this person, their life has become unmanageable, right? And so for them, like powerlessness is admitting they don't have control over the other person that they actually do not have the power to get that person sober or to control that person in any way like they can decide to have their own boundaries and they can decide to offer support if that's what they want to do right but like they actually can't control the other person and when they try to control the other person their life becomes unmanageable yeah because they're running around trying to be like you know like oh well maybe if i like have dinner ready at at a certain time like he won't get so drunk or like Whatever, you or know. maybe if I yell at him and I nag him about it, he won't get so drunk. Right. Maybe if I tell him that drinking is bad for him every day, yeah. he'll stop drinking. Or if I keep telling him that he should go to, like, A or whatever. Like, there's many ways that people try to do that. But it's, like, either way, it's, like, you know, you can offer support to someone. Or you can have boundaries. And you can have your boundaries. You can decide, like, you know, what are you okay with and what are you not okay with. And you can be, like, this is the support that I can offer. But you actually can't control another person. It's it's not possible. And so, and when you try to, like, I mean, the whole idea is that when you try to, your own life becomes unmanageable as well. And so that's the one thing that came up for me. And then the other thing, um, even though I'm super booked, I'm really bad with numbers. So I never, I'm not one of these people who can quote the page numbers at you, though I wish that I could. Because um, <laughs> that's so cool. Um, but like, there's this part in the big book that's like at the back in the stories at the back of the book um, that a lot of sponsors will like tell, um, their sponsees to read and like definitely there's been times in my sobriety where I read it every day and like basically it just like to paraphrase it it's like how important is it really like how important is this compared to like your serenity and your peace of mind right and so you know one thing that people will share about in um meetings a lot and then everyone will laugh is they'll talk about how annoyed they are like on the sidewalk when people are like walking slowly in front of them right or like when they're like on the 
public transit, you know, this is where a lot of people's craziness comes out because they're like, I need to get where I'm going and every other person in the world is in the way of me personally, right. you know? <laughs> and, and it's like, ah, you know? And, and so people can get into like crazy mental health kind of states, like stress and like, just like, you know, sometimes like acting like a dick, like totally acting out of alignment with your normal principles because you're so fucking frustrated that people are like in your way or whatever, right? And so like, you know, we can be mad about these things. We can try to like shove someone out of the way or or just like mentally be like, if only these people knew that they shouldn't walk so slowly or something. But like, you know, that kind of behavior directed towards changing someone else, what is that doing? Is it changing them or is it just making you really stressed out, you know? Yeah. And so like, that's kind of the idea. So all that being said, you know, I recently just um, started a new set, set of steps with a new sponsor. Um, and, you know, I, I started working with the sponsor and I was like, yo, like, I don't know, man, like I'm trying to figure out what I should focus on in the steps this time around. Um, you know, given that like drugs and alcohol are like not a problem for me anymore. Like what is unmanageable? Like what am I powerless over right now? And like, to be honest, like what I had to admit is that I'm fucking powerless over my cancelers. And my life is fucking unmanageable, okay? And so, like, what does that mean, right? Because it's it's different than drugs and alcohol in the sense that it's like, I can't, you know, I mean, I don't know, like, in the, in the way where I can, like, put the bottle down, you know? And then I won't be drinking anymore. Um, I can't put my cancelers down and they're going to stop canceling me. You know, right. they're going to continue. That's the whole point. They are going to. But in the, but in a similar way, it's like alcohol will continue to exist. I'm just choosing not to drink it anymore. Right. Yeah. And it's funny because, okay, so, you know, one of the things with being canceled is that people will just slander you all the time on the internet and harass you all the time and just like post all of this really fucked up, negative, um, horrible shit about you. And it's like really distressing to read, you know, um, but there's also this compulsion to read it. There's this compulsion to look at it because looking at it gives you like a temporary feeling of control, you know? So like when I look at it, at least I know that that's what's being said, um, which gives me like a somewhat of a feeling of power and a bit of a relief from the anxiety. But actually I always feel worse because now I'm looking at all of this horrible shit, right? Yeah. And then what I've also found is that there's like an addictive quality to it where it's like, I'm like, I'm not going to look at it. And then I do, you know, and then I look at it some more and it makes me feel bad. And I know that it's going to make me feel bad and I do it anyway, you know? And like, basically I, so I, you know, I started to work the steps with my sponsor and I started to do the steps specifically in this way where I'm like, I want to look at my relationship to these people who are, um, you know, harassing me and slandering me and the really intense, you know, unmanageability that this is creating in my life. And so I actually, like, it's, it's crazy to think about it this way, but it's like, I had like a few days of abstinence where I was not looking at it. Right. And I was like, I had the impulse to look at it. Cause I knew there was a cancellation campaign happening, you know? So I was like, I feel an urge to look at it and I felt it, you know, but I was like, no, I'm not looking at it. And I managed to get like three or four days of like not looking at it. And then what ended up happening is some person who was actually like pretty well-meaning like this person was like 
you know, is a nice person. Um, they sent me a screenshot, you know? And, like, I have stated my boundary, like, online. Like, I've posted it in my stories and stuff. And I've told my friends, like, please don't send me that stuff. It's, like, really bad for me to look at it. But I guess this person just hadn't seen it. And so, you know, they sent me a screenshot. And as soon as I saw the screenshot, what did I do? I fully went into a canceller relapse. And I, like, started looking at all the other shit. Because I was like, well, what does it matter now? I've already seen it, right? Yeah. And so, like, I was talking to a friend about this, and I was like, it's basically like someone poured, you know, beer in my mouth. So that's why I relapsed, you know? And and he was like, yes, but think about it, Clementine. If What would you do right now today if somebody poured beer in your mouth? <laughs> Weird scenario, I know. But if so- Well, it kind of happened to me recently with the fucking kincher. I know. <laughs> okay, wait. <but> wait. <laughs> okay. So, good example, though. Okay. Yeah. So... So what Jay's talking about is that, unfortunately, <laughs> there was a horrible accident in which somebody gave them a tincture that had alcohol, like an alcohol-based tincture, because a lot of uh, tinctures have an alcohol base. So when you, when you put that in your mouth, what did you do? I, well, I swallowed it, and then I was like, fuck, and then I chugged, like, four liters of water and ate, like, as much bread as I could find. Right. So you did not want it. No. You know, like you negatively. I felt fucking awful, like so fucking bad and horrible. And then I called my friends and yeah. I, I screamed about it. Once I drank a lemonade and I became paranoid that it had alcohol in it and I went into the bathroom and tried to make myself throw up and then I came out again and I was like panicking and it was actually DJ who was there and DJ was like, what's wrong? And I was like, I think there was alcohol in that lemonade and DJ was like, I was literally sitting beside you and like I can I would smell it if there was alcohol. Like there's there was no alcohol in that Clementine. And and I was like, I just tried to make myself vomit. And DJ was like, um, like maybe you should just go ask the bartender who made the drink, like if there was alcohol in it. Cause it was like at a place where they make alcoholic and non-alcoholic drinks. And so I went up and I was like, please just be honest with me, man. Like, was there any alcohol in that lemonade? And he was like, no. Like, <laughs> You're like oh, it would have been like $8. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, it was like very weird. I don't know what, what the hell happened there. But like, obviously you can tell from that, that like I have recovery from alcoholism in the sense that, and they talk about this in the big book where it's like when you get recovery, like you recoil from it as if from a hot flame, you know? So like. Because it's literally poison to me. Yeah. And like, I have fully internalized that now. Like I have had a spiritual awakening sufficient to overcome my addiction. So I actually don't, I don't, I don't want to anymore, you know? And so, so what that, so my friend pointed this out to me and was like, you know, if somebody did pour beer in your mouth, you would spit it out immediately. Like you would be horrified by that, you know? Um, Whereas with this, you know, somebody poured some cancellation into my eyes. And I'm, what did I do? I went and tried to get more, right? Which is like, it's an indication that I don't have recovery on this topic, right? And so that's good to know. And that's why I'm, you know, I'm admitting my powerlessness, right? Like that was an obvious demonstration of my powerlessness that I did that, you know? I was powerless to stop myself from continuing that, right? And so I'm like, okay, like once I get into that cancellation bullshit, I can't stop. So what am I going to do? You know? Um, And so like, that's where, where the rest of the steps come, come in. And like, that's why I'm working the steps. But 
So I think it's interesting and it is um, is an interesting way to look at sort of the emotional and spiritual and like psychological effects of being canceled and the way that like the impulse to try to manage that or to in some, some kind of way think that by looking at it, you can control it. You know, how that actually, instead of it giving you more control, it actually makes your life unmanageable. Yeah. And it gives you less control. It makes you depressed and crazy. And, like, you know, my mental health has been all fucked up, man. My mental health has been all fucked up. You know, I've been having one cancellation campaign after another for, like, going on a year now. And, like, every time it happens, I'm just, like, completely all fucked up. And, like, I'm not saying that that's, like, my fault and my responsibility. It's, like, a totally understandable and normal reaction to having people behave abusively towards me. You know, but again, even when people do things that are fucked up and that are not okay, just the fact that they're fucked up and that they're not okay does not actually give me the power to stop them. Yeah. Right? And yeah. so this is, gets into some tricky territory because I can understand why people might feel defensive hearing this because it's like, it sounds like I'm kind of like co-signing people's bullshit or being like, well, it's okay that people are being abusive to me. I just need to have a better attitude about it. Right. Right. And I'm not saying that. No. It is fundamentally not okay that people are being abusive to me. However, it's reality. Like it is what is currently happening. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the that's, question is what to do about it. Yeah. That's just true. You know, and you know, in the Dr. Christine Marie video um, episode that we did, um, when we were talking to Dr. Christine Marie about her research, like one of the things that people who go through these experiences um, often, you know, reported is this like compulsion with changing the narrative, right? To correct the narrative. Yeah, to be like, I want people to know who I really am and I don't want all of this slander about me to be the narrative about me. And I think that's a healthy impulse. You know, we should represent ourselves and we should share our own, you know, representation of who we are. That's that's normal and healthy. But the idea that we could correct the narrative in the sense that we could stop the false narrative is actually, I mean, I think it's a... I think it falls into this category of like things that we're powerless over and that, you know, obsessing over things that we're powerless over has the tendency to make our lives unmanageable. Yeah. And I think that we like Clementine and I have like some pretty good impulses in this regard um, and some bad ones. And like the, the good one is that like we, we don't like engage with the mm -hmm. cancelers. Like we don't try to like no. argue with them. We don't counter cancel them. No. Um, Cause we know that that won't work. And will make us feel crazy and will make us feel really bad and just like it's it's fundamentally futile right um futile futile, futile. i would say futile but i have no idea yeah um <laughs> surrender or no resistance is futile but seven of nine from star trek says resistance is futile i mean maybe there's more than one way to say it yeah anyways um yeah trying to like counter cancel the cancelers like it won't work Trying to argue with them is ridiculous. And honestly, yeah, I don't know. Like, I I had, like, a moment of, like, and just, like, deactivated my Instagram the other day because I was sort of, like, God, like, I feel like I'm, I'm, like, arguing with people who are, like, completely uninterested and, like, and also unable to, like, like hear what I'm saying, you know? Because I had gotten into this kind of, like, state where I was sort of, like, engaging in a certain level, at least, with, like, what was happening in, like, in cancel world, you know? And I was just like, Bleh. like, I feel fucking gross about this. It's making me feel bad, you know? Originally, when I started my my little my little Instagram there, I was, like, kind of just, like, 
having my own thoughts about stuff, you know, and oh. it was just me and the Instagram, <laughs> you know, and that was fine. But then I started sort of like, yeah, like weirdly engaging with the counselors and it was, it was fucking bad for me, man. I don't like to do that. I don't want to know what they think. What they think is fucking stupid. Um, and fundamentally has nothing to do with me yeah. because they're actually talking about someone that isn't me because they're making things up, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, totally. like it's literally not about me. Um, so yeah, as, as yeah, so I don't know the impulse to not engage with them, I think is a good one. The impulse to like read what they're doing and like know what is going on because it makes me feel like I can control it is a bad one because I fundamentally like cannot control it. Um, knowing what they're doing doesn't make me more able to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it just makes me feel bad and it makes me feel crazy and and has me like fucking running on stress fumes all day. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. It's actually interesting. I, I mean, this is a bit of a... Um, um, an aside, I guess, but I, it made me think of it because you're right. Like in some ways I do think, you know, in some ways I'm proud of myself in the ways that I, um, am responding because I do stick to my principles and I do stick to my integrity with this stuff. You know, we don't count counter cancel. We don't, um, you know, we don't talk shit. Like, you know, I don't even name the people that are doing these things to me. Um, I don't even name them and say, please don't harass them, you know, because I know and I understand that once I name them, there's no controlling whether or not they're going to be harassed. And given the fact that I have 70,000 followers, even though I am overtly against cancel culture, the chances of people sort of weirdly thinking they're not canceling someone and then harassing this person because they're harassing me is like pretty high, you know, because for some reason people constantly do cancel culture things. And for some reason they think it's not cancel culture. I don't know. Like, it's just a it's, whole thing. It's, it's a whole thing, yeah. It's a whole thing that people do. And it's like, I don't want this person to be harassed. You know? I don't want that. And so, I do not name them. And, like, I don't ever name my cancelers. And I also don't, you know, like, I just, I don't treat them in, in any kind of way that I wouldn't want to be treated. You know? Yeah. Like, I think the furthest we've gone is sort of making fun of, like, specific things that they say. Um, but yeah, even then, like we never name them. We don't like drop like receipts or like whatever yeah, the fuck. Like exactly. it's, it's, or like post screenshots of conversations or anything like this. It's, yeah. it's such like unhealthy, ridiculous behavior. And like, I think, yeah, like, you know, sometimes we laugh about the absurdity of what is happening to us. And I think that that's different from like actually sort of like targeting a person, you know? And yeah. again, we don't name them. So yeah. Anyway, so, like, I feel really, like, in my principles and in my integrity about that. Um, But then I was thinking about it when you were talking, and I'm like, hmm, I need to talk to my sponsor about this. Because it's interesting, because in some ways, I'm actually showing my counselors more respect than I'm showing myself. Mm, Tell me more, Clementine. Because I'm being, like... I want to recognize these people's humanity. I don't want to hurt them. I don't want to create chaos in their lives or in their nervous systems. You know, I don't, I don't want them to feel pain and to be feeling all fucked up, you know? Right. So like, I'm not going to do anything that is going to contribute to that possible outcome. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to contribute to them being canceled in any kind of way, shape or form. You know, if they feel fucked up and sad or whatever for unrelated reasons to me, like that's a whole separate thing. That is their own life. And they have the right to feel those feelings because that's their own journey that they're on. But I don't want to create those feelings for them, you know? Yeah. Um, And so, but I'm creating those feelings for myself 
when I'm choosing to look at it, you know? And like, of course, I could say, well, no, they're creating those feelings for me because they're creating all of this, you know, um, slander about me and encouraging people to harass me and so on. And that's true. They are doing that. And it does have a very negative effect on me. But again, that is not something that I can change. It's not something I have power over. But what I do have power over is whether or not I choose to look at it, right? And so why am I looking at it? And like, again, like I can understand that I have some, some justifications for looking at it, but I had justifications for drinking too, right? Like I can always justify things that are bad for me, you know? Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, this is not to say that the effects of cancellation are only from looking at bad things that people are saying about you. No. Like there's all these material effects that, yeah. I mean generally you also can't control um but there that's it's different you know like losing your housing or losing friends or losing like a job or whatever like that's you you can't you can't mitigate that by like not looking at your yeah. housing yeah <laughs> you know and I mean? like i have lost all of those things you know and it's like i have lost all of those things and it fucking sucks like this is not to in any way minimize like the severity of how abusive cancel culture is and like the real and severe material impacts it has on people's lives. Like, absolutely. That's all real. And I fucking could not do anything about it. It happened, you know? Um, but again, where is my power? You know, right. do I want to live in my powerlessness or do I want to live in my power? You right. Know? So it's like, how do you identify what power you do have? And how do you use that power for your benefit? You know? And so, Sometimes it's kind of can feel so overwhelming because you're like, you know, this is extremely overwhelming. Like I have lost so much and it has been so painful, but where do I have power? And one small place where I have power is that I don't need to be putting that poison into my eyeballs. You know, mm -hmm. I don't need to be doing that. That's like just, it's like a form of self-harm. I don't know who said that, but somebody said that at one point. Um, maybe someone who emailed us or something. It's definitely, I read it somewhere. Um, but they were like, looking at that shit is like a type of self-harm. Natalie Wynn says that too. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, I feel like I read it in an email, but I'm sure multiple people have come to that conclusion. Totally. Um. Yo, I'm just having this crazy thought, babe. What? <laughs> like, kind of the, like, there's like a, there's like a step here, which is admitting that you're canceled. <laughs> and just accepting it. Yeah. And being like, I can't. Well, that's it. You know, I, I mean, mean it's, it's kind of the same thing as what we're saying, but like, I'm just kind of. No, I mean, it's true. And it's like admitting that you're powerless over your cancelers is admitting that you are canceled. Yeah. You know? Exactly. And like, there's, there's some, there's some parallels here. Like there's some analogies that we could use to kind of draw out what we're saying. Right. So like, I'm trying to think of something because I like to use analogies like from my own life, um, but I'm trying to know, I'm trying to think of, I can think of a good one. Um, like, okay, here, I, I have complex PTSD, right? Many things about that sucks, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Many things about it sucks a lot. And it's not fair that it happened to me. You know, it's, it's fundamentally unfair that it happened to me. It was something that I had no control over and it is something that has happened to me and that has permanently affected the course of my life. Right. In my case, I've had complex PTSD since I was a child, but for other people, you know, it can be even more jarring if you become disabled later in life. Right. Whether that's through, um, something like PTSD or like 
through some kind of accident, like a physical or like whatever mental psychological disability, you know, it can fucking suck. You're like, I had this whole course of my life planned out. I had this trajectory of my life. And now there's this whole new thing that's happening that can be painful, that can be hard, that maybe is taking away opportunities that I had like really believed were going to be true for me. And there's like this whole other reality that has just been sort of like subjected upon me. And it's not the reality I would have chosen for myself, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, that sucks. And like, of course, there's going to be grief. There's going to be a whole fucking emotional process before you get to acceptance, for sure. And I'm not saying you can just snap your fingers and get to acceptance. But if you don't move towards acceptance, like you're staying in suffering, right? Because it's like, if I want to be like, I wish I was someone who never got complex PTSD. Well. Yeah, like fine, but like. So so, what? Like, I mean, true, but also I do have complex PTSD. Yeah. You know? And that means all sorts of things. It means that things are going to be harder for me. And so many things are harder for me because of this fucking complex PTSD, man. It sucks. And sometimes like I have to come up against that grief again and again where I'm like, relationships are harder for me. Sex is harder for me. Like, you know, like just like it took me so many fucking years to, to do things and to like, to believe in myself in ways that, you know, was way easier for other people. And like, I have so much grief about that and so much anger about that, but it's also just fucking true. Right. And so what I've had to do is I've had to be like, okay, that's not something I can change, but what is in my power is you know, how am I going to take care of myself as somebody with complex PTSD? You know, how am I going to um, advocate for myself, learn about, you know, trauma and like learn about whatever. Yeah. I went to therapy. I've been in therapy for a very fucking long time. I like studied this to figure out what kinds of therapy would like help me the most. And like, I have like really actively sought out, you know, how can I have as much power as possible in terms of like the situation that really does exist, which is that I do have complex PTSD, right. you know? And so in a similar way with like, there's a very similar parallel there with cancellation, right? You know, since I've been canceled, like I lost my fucking book deal, you know, that was a huge dream of mine. It's something that I wanted, you know, I lost it. It got taken away from me because I was canceled, you know? And that means that like, basically as a writer, I'm probably going to have to be a self-published writer for the rest of my life. Like, I may not be able to find a press who is willing to work with me because I'm canceled. You know, Mm -hmm. that sucks. It makes a lot of sense that I would feel grief about that, that I would feel anger about that. It's not fair. It's definitely not fair, but I could like stay in that or I could be like, okay, well, this is reality. So how am I going to self-publish these books? Like, what do I need to do to like create the best possible situation for myself given the circumstances, given the reality, you know? Yeah, for sure. And And it's also, I don't know, I'm also thinking about how, like, actually this entire podcast is really interesting as when you think about it through this lens because it's kind of like, at a certain point, we're like, okay, we admit that we are fucking canceled. (laughs) Yeah, we did. Okay, we admit that we're canceled. Um, Our lives are unmanageable. And we are no longer going to keep trying to not be canceled yeah you know we're, we're not gonna fucking play along anymore yeah like we're not gonna play like weird word games on the internet with fucking woke people so that they don't cancel us yeah <laughs> you know what absolutely. i mean absolutely oh my god <laughs> ah! oh my god oh my god okay i'm sorry i just had this whole thing <laughs> yo we're having a clementine epiphany like live okay i'm fucking canceled okay Wow. So, 
like, you know, everything that I was saying about how, about freedom and about how when I was drinking, like, I believe that trying to manage it is like, you know, how I, you know, kept myself, that's how I was free. I was free to drink. So as long as I kept trying to manage it, you know, and control it, that's how I could have freedom. But then when I found that when I stopped trying to control it, that's where the real freedom was. And then when you talked about that, I, the parallel was just so clear for me because it's like before I was canceled, for years, I lived in fear of cancellation. For fucking years, I lived in fear of it. And, you know, of course I lived in fear of it because, like, I'm an alcoholic and I had this really sketchy prior life that I was always, like, low-key worried that people would somehow find out about and, like, cancel me for that. But but even beyond that, even though I was so, like, I knew the rules of the Nexus inside and out. I studied them closely, you know, because I have complex PTSD and I'm hypervigilant as fuck. And any information that is relevant to my safety, I study that shit, right? And so I knew, like, I always knew, like, what was the right way, like, what language and, like, how it was supposed to be said and, like, what was problematic and what was not problematic. I was, like, always ahead of the curve on that shit, you know, because I was trying to protect myself. And so... I lived in this extremely hypervigilant way where I was constantly like, you know, just trying to protect myself from being canceled over and over and over again, like, you know, self-censoring, not saying what I really, you know, believed, not even letting myself ask myself what I really believed, like just really doing what I thought was expected of me to keep myself safe, you know? Yep. Um, and when people were like, you know, literally just being dicks to me. I would be like, thank you very much, you know? Yeah, because you're encouraged to do that. And I would just do that because I was trying to keep myself safe. And, like, being canceled has been literally traumatic. Like, again, like, Dr. Christine Marie's research shows that this shit fucking causes PTSD. And I already fucking had PTSD, so it's been really fucking traumatic for me, this whole experience, for sure. And at the same time, I am free in a way that I was never fucking free before, you know? I was never free. Like, I could not just honestly speak my mind, you know? And so, like, the parallels to me are, like, really, really real with with stopping drinking where it's, like, when I finally was just, like, fuck it, man. I can't control this anymore. I'm done. Then, like, this whole other life opened up for me in the same way with this where it's, like, where I was just, like, you know what? If you guys are going to cancel me, fine. Cancel me. Like, now... I can be honest. I can say what I really think. I can think about what I really believe. I can ask questions. I can have a podcast called fucking canceled, you know? Yeah. I can just like like record myself whereas like before I was like way too fucking scared to just like talk, you know, openly like I mentioned this on the podcast before, you know? Um and so yeah, like Yeah. We admit we're fucking canceled. We admit we're fucking canceled. Wow. That was like really that was really intense. I need to talk to my sponsor about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, fuck. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. And then, I don't know. The other thing we want to talk about basically was like, what would happen if the cancelers admitted that they were powerless? What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, this kind of goes back to... Um, to stuff that we talked about on the episode called Refusing Accountability. Um, But basically, like, if you talk about, um, if you say you oppose cancel culture, you know, which we do say all the time, people will constantly come to you and they will ask this question where they're basically like, well, what do you do if you have demanded that someone be accountable and they won't? Like, people are so, like, 
exasperated by this and like really confused by it. They're like, well, what if you demanded accountability? You yeah. asked for accountability. You asked nicely. You tried to call them in. You did. You were asking them to do this specific thing that you want them to do. And they just won't. What are you supposed to do then? And people really believe genuinely that that obviously means that you can and you should publicly create a harassment campaign against them. Yeah, you know? or find whatever fucking way to, like, coerce and control them. And it's yeah. like, what do you do if you have tried to control someone and they won't be controlled? <laughs> and it's like, well, you could read a book, you could bake a pie, yeah. <laughs> you could go outside. Yeah, and, <laughs> you could, you know? and it's really, really, really hard for people to wrap their minds around this, right? Like, and I get it. Like, we're being kind of, like, flippant about it. And I know that in in some cases, this comes from, like, a very intense and real place. In some cases, it is literally just people trying to control people that they don't like. In other cases, I fucking understand, you know, as a survivor, how fucking painful and hurt it is when you want someone to take responsibility and change their behavior because their behavior is extremely hurtful and abusive, and they just won't, you know? I understand that intimately. But again, trying to control another person isn't possible. Like, and we go into this in a lot of detail um, in the Refusing Accountability episode. And like, we're not going to go over it all again. But like, if you are interested in this, like, I suggest that you listen to that episode. But like, basically, what we talk about in that episode is that this like attempt at controlling other people, right? This refuse, like refusing to admit that we are powerless over other people and trying to control them and coerce them through cancellation campaigns where we try to force them to do what we want by making it basically so painful for them not to do what we want that they'll do it. All that's going to get you is like the, um, like the illusion of change, right? Like they will, uh, people can be cornered into basically saying what, you know, what they're told to say, you know, but, but like real transformation, like real deep transformation is not something that can be coerced. Like it's something that people do have to enter into willingly because it's a huge amount of work and you can't do that work from a place of dishonesty. You just can't. Yeah. And like, whatever, like the people you cancel, like don't, they don't go anywhere. Like they, they don't disappear. I mean, I mean, I mean, some of them, you know, might like take their own lives, but like, or they might move or something like that. But, like, they're still around, man. You know, they're still... And, and you know what? You haven't changed their minds either. And it's, like, there's, like, a certain... Ca- like, you know, maybe the first couple times you, like, call out or low-key cancel somebody, they sort of... They grovel and they're, like, I'm so sorry and I've changed my ways or whatever. But they haven't changed their mind most of the time. Now they're just critical of cancel culture but in silent in silence. Um, and then, you know, when you go too far then and they drop off the face of the earth, they're, they're still around. They're just, like, in their fucking house, you know? And they're, they're our fucking patrons, um, listening to our podcast, you yeah. know, um, and trying to figure out ways to to exist in the world, but they haven't changed their fucking minds. If anything, you know, now they believe what we believe. So yeah. sorry, it didn't work. Yeah, um, or and- <laughs> or like another possibility of this is that people, you know, kind of like what I was saying. I used to be like, where it's like maybe they really do buy it, hook, line, and sinker. Well, you on know? some level, yeah, and they are like parroting everything that they think that they're supposed to say. But a lot of the times when you see people who are really caught up in the nexus, who who are who are like saying everything right, they can't like they don't actually they aren't actually able often to explain in their own words 
why they believe the things that they believe. Like very often it is like they're repeating like an article of faith. Like they're repeating a line that they have been told to repeat, you know? Right. Um, and they might do that like very like devoutly, you know, and, and sort of say what they know that they're supposed to say because they don't want to get into trouble. But that is such a superficial thing. Like it is not actually, you know, and so, you know, some of these things might be like really serious topics where like you're trying to, um, you're trying to get people to change in a, in a real way, you know, in a good way. Um, but really they're just giving lip service to it because they just don't want to get into trouble. Right. And that's not the same thing as people deeply and profoundly transforming their behavior in a way that would actually be helpful, you know? Yeah. And okay. I'm just going to bring in like a little bit of like Marxist perspective on this for a second, because this is a socialist podcast Mm -hmm. where we believe in socialism. Um, And I want to say that I think that the focus, the like strong focus on individually sort of like punishing or disciplining or correcting or whatever individual people for whatever transgression, whether it be like a moral transgression or a political transgression is obviously individualist, right? Yeah. And it stems from this idea also that um, if you can change the people, then society will change. Yeah. And this is sort of like... This is one way of looking at the world, and many people believe this. It's, it's um, you know, Marxists, I'm, I'm very much paraphrasing here, but Marxists would usually say that this is like um, an idealist way of looking at the world, where basically the idea is if you can change people's, um, if you can change the way the individual people think, then society will, will change as a result, right? A Marxist point of view, which is a materialist point of view, would generally say that, okay, fine, but... You have to change society first, and then the way the individual people think will change as a result. Because people are made by their societies. People do not spring from the earth thinking the things that they think. They're taught those things by the cultures that they live in, right? And um, in order to change society, you have to change... I mean, basically, Marxists would say you you have to change the economy. It's the economy. Everything boils down to the economy. Um, The way that we interact with each other, the way that we interact with our work, the way that everything is set up from top to bottom is structured by capitalism, right? And so we have to change that if we want people to change. Um, And so basically it's like, what do you want to do about that person who you don't like or thinks the wrong thing or has hurt other people or whatever? Honestly, if you and your friends can talk to that person and get them to, you know, be less hurtful or you can support them in certain ways or there's an organization that can support them, that's cool, man. That's awesome. And and I hope that that individual person can change, you know? And and if it's just something that they think that you don't think the same, you know, then like leave them alone, you know? Yeah. But if that doesn't work, you know, and you, you really want to know what can I do about this, about this individual, zoom out, man. Zoom out from that individual. Think about that behavior Um, and the way that it's manifest across your entire culture Mm -hmm. and think about how many thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of times that behavior is being repeated across the country you live in. And then think about what it would take for that to change. What Mm -hmm. circumstances would have to change, would have to change. And then think about how you would change those circumstances. Yeah. And the answer is socialism. Almost always, if you're a socialist anyway, or if you claim to be a leftist, it's like, we need to change the circumstances under which people live. Yeah. And, like, okay, so there's a couple things that was coming up for me. Um, one is that, like, it's weird because it's, like, you know, people throw on the word neo- neoliberalism all the time, and 
I mean, we've talked about it on the podcast before, but like one of the one of the sort of ways that neoliberalism works is like the downloading of responsibility from like the state onto the individual, right? Like that's sort of like the trajectory of neoliberalism. Right. And I often think about how, I mean, we talk about how like nexus kinds of politics are neoliberal. And I think one of the ways that they are neoliberal is that we have totally downloaded the responsibility of politics, of justice, of like liberation onto the individual, right? Right. Where we believe that like individuals changing, um, is the same as like systemic change or that it will like naturally lead to systemic change. Um, And then the other piece that this, this brought up for me um, that I think is very relevant to cancel culture is the idea of the scapegoat. And so like, basically what we do is like, we are mad at like these huge, large scale systemic injustices that we are living under. And then what we do is we make like this random human being, not just responsible for the thing that they did, but for the whole fucking thing, like the whole fucking problem, you know? Yeah. And we believe under cancel culture that punishing this one person is somehow like it's an act against the larger system, right? And like we don't actually like we don't actually have compassion often for the fact that this person has been totally like influenced by these larger systems, you know? And like that it kind of like makes sense that they've acted in the ways that they have given the circumstances that they have lived under, you know, we don't actually like, we don't actually allow that to sort of like give a, like create compassion in us or to like contextualize the responsibility that this person might have given their circumstances. But we, on the other hand, believe that punishing them sort of symbolically acts as like a, um, you know, a strike against a larger system, which it doesn't, it just is a strike against a human being. Right. Um, and so, Yeah, like, I think that that is interesting. And I actually think that cancel culture is a way that people cope with their profound sense of powerlessness under capitalism, right? It is a way that people who feel fucking powerless because of climate change, because of fucking mass amounts of injustice that we see every day, you know, that where we see human life and ecological life being treated as completely disposable, as exploitable resources where we see cruelty at mass scales to the point where we're like numb to it you know we feel so powerless over that that we believe well look I might not have the power to like take down Amazon or like you know um to stop carbon emissions or to take down the prison industrial complex but I I can punish this I can punish this random individual and I can get thousands of other people to punish this random individual and then I can feel like I'm doing politics you know right And so that, I think, really brings us to this place where it's like, okay, how do we build our power, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think that that's, that as socialists is a very important question for us. How do we grow our collective power, right? Because we are not saying that we want to just throw up our hands and be like, yeah, I'm powerless over Capitalism. capitalism. We are saying that together, collectively, we can actually grow our power, right? And that it's one of those things where it's like, you know, like we've said over and over again in different examples that like when we're focusing, you know, all our energy in the wrong place, we close ourselves off to where we really do have power, right? Um, And I think where we really do have power is together, 
collectively, right? And cancel culture actually totally fucking prevents us from moving towards solidarity and moving towards collective power, which is what we fucking need if we really do want to have the power to change the things that we can change. For sure, man. For sure. And I think, like, whatever, I'm just going to say one more thing. Um, I think that, like, on the left, we have this... Uh, I don't even know if I want to go this far. Well, okay, I'm just going to say it, and then maybe I'll I'll walk it back. But, like, we have this kind of obsession with, like, imagining that one day um, these, like, liberal, bourgeois, like, politicians will be nicer to us and will start changing things as long as we, like, sign enough petitions and have enough demonstrations and, like, vote the right way and whatever and whatever. Um, but it's like, they, they won't, man. We need, like, leftist, like, actually leftist political parties or we need like revolutionary politics like one or the other you yeah. know um and at this point i'm like i'm like despondent enough that i'm just like um you know even like even like a mildly leftist like labor party i'd be like happy you, you know <laughs> yeah. what i mean um but like waiting for like the democrats or something to stopping like totally evil bloodthirsty psycho giant bugs um isn't gonna change anything you know what i mean and that we need to accept that we're like powerless over over bourgeois politicians in liberal parties, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that means that we can start fucking actually looking at where our power actually lies. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, I mean, I'm sorry I'm having a 12-step moment again, but, like, I mean, one of the things that's also said in um, the 12-step literature is that, like, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think we've reached a dead end in a lot of places where people are like, fuck, man, what do we do, right? And it's like, we're going to have to try some different things. Yeah. Um, and like, you know, we're going to have more episodes about that for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we, we totally recognize that we, uh, we call this a podcast about like what we're going to do about the left. And then mostly we have just been like interviewing cool people, but, um, we are going to have, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. but we are going to have more episodes, um, in the near future that are going to be more kind of like explicitly, um, about like interesting directions for the left. Yeah, and I mean, look, we don't have all the answers, right? And so, like, if you have cool projects or you have cool ideas about, you know, actually, like, left, like leftist organizing that is happening that is, like, exciting and that feels like it has momentum or that feels promising, like, we want to hear about it, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, we do. And so, like, please email us. And, like, that's the kind of stuff that we are looking for because, like, we are fucking, you know, we are... Recently, ex-Nexans, you know, I for many years thought that being upset on the internet was politics. I only recently found out that it is not. I'm a bit confused, Uh, you know, and I don't claim to have all the fucking answers and I want, I'm actively seeking that, right? I want to fucking find other leftists who are creatively trying to figure out how to make shit happen, you know? And like, that's, that's part of what this podcast is too, right? Like, yes, we are like talking, you know, and you're listening, but we also want to hear from you and we want to hear what the fuck is going on in your communities and like what organizing stuff is happening and and so on and so forth. And we have gotten some really cool emails about that. And we are going to talk more about this on future um, episodes. But with that being said, um, it is now 8 p.m. and it is against the law for me to leave, but I <laughs> do have to leave because my dog is alone at home. So it's a bit of a dilemma. Um, so I, guess- I did it the other day and like there was there was like 10 million like Hasidic children running around and yeah. like just random skateboarders and stuff. So okay. it's probably fine. I'm going to hope that it's fine. I do not want an $1,000 ticket. Um, but yeah, thank you guys so much for being here. Um, one other thing I just wanted to say, and I mean, I think it goes without saying, but I just do want to say it. 
you know, obviously as we are big 12 steppers and we talk about our experience with sobriety and with the 12 steps, I mean, if you've listened to this podcast, you know this already, but like we 100% know that not everybody has that same path and like we totally respect all people's paths and journeys with regard to substance use. We believe in harm reduction and we believe that like 12 steps has no monopoly on recovery either. So yeah, we just want to like highlight that we are speaking about us and our own experience and people who share that experience um, when it comes to like substance stuff. Yeah, for sure. And if this doesn't resonate with you, then it doesn't resonate with yeah. you. It's not for you. It's yeah. Fine. yeah. Yeah. Take what you like and leave the rest. Yeah. Um, and so with that, um, we'll just like remind you about our Patreon. Um, yeah. Patreon.com slash fucking canceled. And um, you can email us at fucking canceled at gmail.com. And fucking has no you because Gmail was mad about it. And canceled has two L's because we are Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> We are Canadian. Well, <laughs> Quebecois. I'm Quebecois. <laughs> I'm definitely Quebecois. Uh, okay, so thanks for uh, thanks for being here.